Okay, welcome back, everybody, to the Martial Arts Mania Podcast. I am one of your hosts, AJ. And I am the other, Gavin. <laughs> Is it, did it come out super choppy when I started talking? or No, no, I just decided to do that. That, that was Gavin's English dub uh, voice. Little did you know, when he was living in Japan in the 80s, he was actually dubbing uh, Japanese television. Yeah. But anyway, uh, so today we have a very, very special episode. We have an awesome guest. We just recorded yesterday. We're trying to get this out as soon as possible. Uh, he is a fellow podcaster, uh, someone that I've been friends with online for a couple of years now, an extremely intelligent individual, well-respected uh, in the martial arts community, and he has an equally as vast no- amount of knowledge on martial arts cinema as Gavin and I do, if not more so, just because of his rich uh, knowledge of Hong Kong in general, not just Hong Kong cinema. And so our guest for today is Sifu Alex Richter, the founder of City Wing Chun in New York. And when our episode gets going, he'll introduce himself a little bit more. But we were very excited to have him on. We're extremely thankful that he took the time out of his busy schedule because he's actually still doing a lot of online teaching and tutorials, uh, being that he's very well respected in the Wing Chun community. And uh, he's actually, he was saying how he's had more opportunities now uh, to teach in certain ways and to teach people outside of his particular Wing Chun lineage. And he dropped some knowledge bombs on us. And uh, it was just great having him on. Yeah, I would say uh, listeners uh, bust out a, a pen, pencil, pad, or just open up your notes on your on your droid or apple smartphone because this is this was a master class and i i know i'm going to go back and listen but this is a master class in martial arts in hong kong and hong kong cinema i just had so much fun doing this episode yes and uh we chose to decide obviously we could have dwelled on the most popular or well-known wing chun films uh in our current uh day and age the Yip Man movies are most famous. Most people know The Prodigal Son, the great Sammo Hung film. But we chose to focus on a different one, which you'll get to hear about. Excuse me. And I apologize right now. My brain is a little fried simply because I uh, had my defense of my comprehensive exams for my master's program this morning. So I completed that. I am now officially done with graduate school. Yay, me. But I'm definitely stumbling over my words right now. So... Uh, and I'm exhausted, but we will keep this short. Anything you want to share, Gavin? Well, I, I like I said, uh, that this is this is one of those episodes where I'm going to go back and I'm going to listen to it so that I make sure I didn't miss any details because it is just it is really a masterclass on Hong Kong, Wing Chun, Hong Kong cinema. Uh, and the only thing I would have to add at this point is congratulations to you on completing your masters. We should do a, a separate episode where we go into. Uh, what your goals are now that you have your master's in and what your objective was uh, for pursuing this route. That's yeah. Maybe we'll add that on to the next episode. Uh, another thing to celebrate though, real quick is we finally made it onto uh, Apple podcasts. So now 
If you have an Apple product and you go to that podcast app, you can look us up and all of our episodes will be on there from now on. Uh, a couple of the first ones did not make it on because I didn't link us up until later. I did re-release our very first episode though, the Peter Sugarfoot Cunningham one. So you can check that out. But otherwise we will be available on the Apple Podcast app now. So that is great news. Uh, we have an idea of what we're doing for our next episode. So we're very excited about that. We have a few more guests uh, lined up. So yeah, I Let's think uh, we're ready to go into this episode. Let's do it. Uh, yeah, I hope you guys enjoy. And yeah, we'll talk to you later. Okay, welcome back everyone to the Martial Arts Mania podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, a fellow podcaster, one of the individuals who inspired us to start our podcast, a fellow martial artist, uh, very esteemed in the world of Chinese martial arts, specifically Wing Chun. He runs an amazing school in New York City, uh, Seems like one of the coolest traditional Kung Fu schools I've ever seen. I can't wait to go in person. Today, our very special guest is Sifu, Alex Richter. Welcome. How you doing, man? It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. Yes, it is our pleasure. And so just for the fluidity of this conversation, uh, for our listeners, for maybe some that don't know, so uh, rather than call Alex Sifu Alex this whole time, we will just call him Alex. Oh but yeah, please. Both Gavin That's fine. and, our, yeah, <laughs> and uh, myself, we we definitely have that traditional martial arts side. Where in person, you know, uh, for those of you that don't know, in Chinese martial arts, for example, if someone is not your particular sifu, it's usually sifu Bob, sifu Bill, right? And if they are your instructor, it's just sifu. Uh, but just to make this conversation flow better, we will just call him Alex. Sounds like a plan. It makes it a lot easier and, and not so formal. Like they say in the dubbed Kung Fu movies, don't be so formal. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> but the funny part is Gavin actually already has a Sifu. So we both train with Sugarfoot, but Gavin also has a Sifu. Uh, I think you'll get a kick out of who that is, uh, Alex. You want to tell him, Gavin? Yeah, absolutely. It's Sifu Don Nayam. Uh, I presume you're familiar with the movie Undefeatable and the character Stingray. Uh, oh, yes. Oh, the famous <laughs> fight scene with Cynthia Rothrock, yes. right? Yes. Absolutely. That is Gavin Sifu. That is incredible. Cynthia posted that fight scene on her Facebook a few weeks ago and, and was talking about it and said they had no idea when they were filming that that it would be like such a thing. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> I think a lot of people say that when their videos now surface on the internet. And a lot of the times it's not for a positive reason. I didn't know this was going to be a thing, man. Exactly, right? <laughs> Real quick, uh, Alex, how about you give a quick introduction to yourself so listeners can kind of know a little bit more about you? Uh, yeah, so I'm uh, kind of a martial arts nut. Um, obviously, my specialty is Wing Chun. I've been teaching Wing Chun for 18 years, and I've been doing it for 25 years, something like that. Uh, so obviously, Wing Chun is my wheelhouse, but I love Chinese martial arts, and I'm a huge fan of all martial arts. Um, unlike a lot of Wing Chun people, I'm really into MMA. I think jiu-jitsu is great. I love boxing, and I'm into all the sport arts as well. So like martial arts 
are just a huge passion of mine. It's just that I've specialized in Wing Chun. Um, I've um, been doing martial arts since I was eight years old. I have a black belt in Taekwondo. As a teenager, I did non-classical Wing Chun in the Seattle area from some early period students of descendants of like Ed Hart and James DeMille, uh, who are two early period students of Bruce Lee. I did a little bit of grappling in my teen years and I, I dabble a little bit. I have um, uh, um, I have some training with one of Henzo's guys here in New York, Magno Gama, who's like an absolute wizard in jujitsu. And I meet with him, uh, you know, when there's no coronavirus going on. Um, so I'm, I'm into all of it. And I also have my own podcast, Dudes of Kung Fu with uh, Big Sean Madigan. He's the Jeet Kune Do guy and I'm the Wing Chun guy. I smell a sitcom. And uh, that's our podcast. <laughs> and I have a Kung Fu Genius channel now on YouTube, which is kind of new, so. Yes, I recommend everyone listen to Dudes of Kung Fu. It's one of my favorites. And also, uh, the name, the Kung Fu Genius, is not something Alex gave himself. It was actually given to him by the Hong Kong press. That's right. Uh, with uh, So, you know, as anyone who's been around the uh, Wing Chun or even Chinese martial arts block for a minute knows, uh, Chinese martial arts are highly politicized. Wing Chun being certainly no exception. Perhaps it is the most politicized of all of them. And so I... Um, I was famously a representative of my teacher, Sifu Ting for many years, and uh, I left him in 2011, which was a political decision. It wasn't actually a personal decision because of him or anything, and, uh, and went on my merry way, did my own thing, built my school, and then Apple Daily, which is a huge Hong Kong gossip rag, they did an article on my school mm, four years ago, five years ago, something like that, and um, he saw the article. And he got really upset about it, my former teacher, Siva Leung Ting, and then wrote this scathing statement <laughs> that he had only taught me for one week, <laughs> which was crazy because, first of all, I thought it was so funny. He was clearly, this is a typical tactic he does with a lot of his former students. If they're ever, if they continue to be successful, suddenly they don't know anything. But what it ended up backfiring on him because a number of people in the martial arts community came out to support me. And I jokingly, when the, the Apple Daily asked me for my reaction, I said, hey, if I learned all the Wing Chun from him in one week, then I must be a Kung Fu genius. And then they use that like in the main title of like the follow-up article and thusly was dubbed the Kung Fu genius by the Hong Kong press. So yes. And there you go. And I, I must say one of the, the really cool things, and I was explaining this to Jessica uh, the other day about Alex's school. So he learns a lot of these different arts as a way to, uh, you know, how to teach his students within the Wing Chun system to defend against other styles as Wing Chun was originally designed to do. But it's not like you see some of these other traditional Chinese schools. They'll do their traditional forms. They'll do this and that. And then when it comes down to sparring, they suddenly are just doing like MMA, right? They abandon, abandon the system. Whereas Alex takes the actual Wing Chun system and teaches his students how to defend against these other arts. But he also is able to apply it in a realistic manner by going and learning these other arts. And I think this is a very... Uh, intelligent and modern approach to traditional Chinese Kung Fu that I think more instructors can learn from this example. Yeah, uh, thanks a lot. I'm glad you uh, uh, appreciate that. I mean, for me, I actually find that that's the traditional way of doing Wing Chun. I mean, Wing Chun was traditionally designed to fight against the other styles of Kung Fu, namely the Northern styles and other Southern styles. And um, my good friend, Sifu Chan Chi Man, who's actually Bruce Lee Si Heng, he's the elder Kung Fu brother of Bruce Lee. He's still alive and kicking in Hong Kong. He told me that, you know, sometimes in the middle of Chi Sao training, Grandmaster Yip Man would drop down and bust out like a Choi Le Fut combination, go with a low punch and go to the top, or suddenly do a kick from a non-Wing Chun style to make sure that his students could adequately defend against the type of thing that would happen on the street. So while 
in traditional martial arts, it seems kind of modern and progressive that I make sure my students can know what a real jujitsu takedown looks like. Um, but actually, for me, I just considered it an extension of the the tradition in Wing Chun, which is to fight against other martial arts and not to fight against each other. So, yeah. Exactly. There you go. And I must say, it's it's the Dudes of Kung Fu podcast, because I've grown up my whole life a Kung Fu nut, obsessed with Chinese martial arts. But maybe it was just kind of the fact of where I grew up, and I wasn't actually around the uh, kind of the world of it. Uh, but through you, I've learned about the politics and the infighting within Chinese Kung Fu. And I must say, it's fascinating, man. It's like a soap opera. And uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my wife, who's from Hong Kong, she's a lawyer from Hong Kong, she has absolutely zero interest in learning martial arts, but she loves the gossip, and there's plenty of it. So she knows, like, oh, this Sifu doesn't like that Sifu, and this guy took this guy's student, and all this kind of back and forth. And, you know, for me, I, I'm, not, I'm somewhat detached from Wing Chun politics because I have my own association now, and I don't – I just focus on the art. Um, although I'm aware of all the politics that are going on, I'm not part of it. But uh, what I do is I, I, I meet the Sifus of the other styles in Hong Kong and I find out what their politics are. And for me, it's just like, it's like TVB soap opera time. Okay, why does this guy hate this guy? <laughs> and it's a lot easier to listen to because it's not m my family, right? So I can, I can be a lot more objective with it, right? Most definitely. So uh, one of the first things I want to talk about today. So uh, it was about 10 or 12 years ago, there was two TV shows on around the same time. One was on the History Channel. It was called Human Weapon. The other was on Discovery Channel. It was called Fight Quest. And they had very similar setups where it was uh, two American fighters or uh, not so real fighters uh, that would go around the world learning different martial arts and then usually have a competition at the end. The better of the two shows, in my opinion, was Fight Quest. And it starred Jimmy Smith, who is now a well-known MMA commentator. Uh, and uh, he's on a few different podcasts. Uh, very uh, smart individual. And uh, so it was Jimmy Smith and then Doug was the other one. He was like the rookie fighter because at that time, Jimmy Smith was a uh, MMA fighter himself. And so they went around the world learning these different styles. And the very last episode they did was Wing Chun in Hong Kong. And Jimmy Smith went to go train with Sifu Leong Ting. And Alex was there at that time and has some awesome insight. And Jimmy Smith actually just released his episode of uh, Fight Quest Stories, like behind the scenes. But I think it would be cool to hear Alex's take on what went down that we didn't hear about. Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, actually, that was uh, that was a huge thing for me because I thought that, well, that was going to be my, my big exposure, like I would get on a TV <laughs> show. Because, but it ended up not being that way at all. And uh, so the weird thing was the producer of, I don't know, I don't know how that show was made if every episode had a different production company or if it was the same production company, because the impression I got is whoever was producing the Wing Chun episode didn't really know a lot about the other episodes of Fight Quest. So uh -huh. I had a feeling like for the Wing Chun episode, they hired out this production team and maybe the karate episode was done by another one. I don't know. I could be mistaken on that. Either way, the guy came to my school. He actually contacted me directly and said that they wanted to do an episode. And I had already heard of Fight Quest because um, I think the Wing Chun episode is the last episode of the one and only season they had. So that when they contacted me, like the first couple episodes had already hit, so I had heard of it already. And then um, the, the guy came to me and he wanted to see what Wing Chun looked like. So uh, I had some of my bruisers kind of pad up and like just kind of going at it and fighting. And he's like, wow, this is crazy. Wing Chun is so aggressive. This is going to be a great episode. And then he asked me what my ideas were. And so uh, I told him, I said, well, 
Hong Kong. So it was it was not just the Wing Chun episode. It was also their only Hong Kong episode. Right. And I said, well, one of one of the big you know the big kind of fight lore about Hong Kong, especially in the fifties, as styles like Wing Chun and Hong Kun and Choi Le Fat started to make a name for themselves was that most of them were on rooftops in Hong Kong. And this was because, obviously, a lot of these young teenagers who are practicing Kung Fu, they didn't want to get in trouble with the police. So they weren't going to have a fight in the park where someone could call the police or they could be you know, found out or whatever. They basically wanted to have friendly scraps where they could see who's the better fighter, is your Wing Chun better than my Hong Kun, so on and so forth. So the only place that they could kind of fight without anyone watching them were, were on rooftops because Hong Kong's very densely packed. There's not a lot of open space, right? So there was this lore about rooftop fights. And I said, so the Fight Quest episode on Wing Chun, I told the guy, I said, you have to have it on a rooftop because that's the whole Hong Kong thing. And he's like, oh yeah, I love this. And then I said, and what you should do is, because I didn't really 100% understand the format of Fight Quest because I had seen one or two episodes. The one thing I thought was kind of strange about Fight Quest was that um, uh, Jimmy or Doug, they learn whatever style for like three days, right? Uh -huh. And then they have to fight against someone from the school of the style that they were just learning from, which I find is kind of strange because first of all, Jimmy Smith is a professional MMA fighter. He had already had professional fights at that point, right? So whether he got good at whatever style he was doing for three days or not, the dude could still fight. Yeah. So I thought, well, I mean, what, what if he goes to a karate school, learns karate for three days, then fights their best guy and still beats them? He makes that school look stupid, right? Yeah. And it just so happens because he's a good fighter, not because that karate sucks, right? Um, and also, like, it just seems kind of strange. Like, you accept someone into your home, give them all the best training, and then he's got to try to give you a black eye, right? So I thought that from a cultural perspective, it's a little strange. So I thought, I told the producer, I said, it doesn't really make sense. We trained this guy in Wing Chun for three days, and then he fights one of our guys. I said, what you should do is both of the guys should learn Wing Chun from two different Sifus. And when they're done, they should fight practitioners from other Kung Fu styles. Because that was the promise of Wing Chun, right? Okay, with, with a little bit of practice, you could um, fight uh, competently against someone who knew another traditional martial art. So I said, you could have a Hong Kun guy, a Choi Le Fat guy, and maybe a Mantis guy or some other style. So they would have three fights against three traditional exponents of other Kung Fu styles. So it became the classic style versus style and see if these guys with a little bit of Wing Chun training could fight that. And the, the producer was like, this is totally brilliant. This is great. And then, and then I said, you know, and I, I would love to go there and train. And if you need me to, to be one of the fighters or fight with it, whatever, I'm totally cool with that. He's like, yeah, 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 come, everything, fine, right? So we, there were a few weeks left, and I remember I put myself into like a rocky training mode, right? I was using Boss Rutten's uh, MMA workout, which is like one of my favorite workouts, that 27-minute long without break where you're doing kickboxing and, pu and push-ups and everything. I just modified it for Wing Chun. I was doing that like three, four times a week. I was hitting the bag. I was just eating nothing but steak. You know, I mean, I was just like training like a maniac so that because I knew Jimmy was a tough guy and uh, maybe I might have to fight him. I don't know. So uh, I wanted to be in good shape. So I went to Hong Kong like in really good shape. And I went with uh, one of my students, big guy, also a bruiser. So we were like ready to go do our thing. When we get to Hong Kong, the same producer was there, the one who met me in my school. He had basically completely changed everything. He was, we were like, yeah, so what are the other Kung Fu styles that they're gonna fight? No, 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 we're not gonna do that. They're just gonna fight the Wing Chun guys at the end. Uh, okay, but like the idea we came up with was way better. Yeah, yeah, no, we're gonna do it that way. 
And then, and, and then suddenly, and I was like, all right, well, you know, then I, I don't mind fighting and representing Wing Chun. I can fight Jimmy or I can fight Doug. Doesn't matter. No, no, no. You can't fight. You're not Chinese. Right. And I was like, yeah. I was like, wait, what? First of all, the guy told me in New York that he was cool with me fighting and participating and being in the episode. And then suddenly, um, and you know, it was kind of weird. Like, okay, it was, it was 12 years ago, 2008. Um, but they were so culturally insensitive to like uh, mar- Chinese martial arts in general. And they were also very culturally insensitive to the fact that, you know, many Westerners practice Chinese martial arts, Chinese practice martial arts, Koreans practice Chinese martial arts, everyone practices Chinese martial arts. Yeah. And then, but they wanted to make it, and, and, and uh, you know, I apologize for using this here. They wanted to make it like very rice paddy hat kind of like, that, you know, frog button stereotypical nonsense. And and I remember just going like, and it was weird because this was the same guy who came to my school and suddenly they were like, no, we're just gonna have him fight. You know, they train for three days at the end, they just fight the Wing Chun guys. Yeah, we'll do it on a rooftop. But the rooftop thing was the only one of my ideas that they took. I personally think fighting against the other Kung Fu styles would have been so kick ass, but uh, no, that's not how they wanted it. Okay. So, um, and then suddenly I wasn't allowed to be in the episode and I met Jimmy the first day when he came to the Hong Kong gym and I was there training there with all the other people. And the producer came in and says, he has to leave pointing to me and my student and said, um, and, and, and it was so crazy because, uh, uh, my Seagong Leung Teng got so angry. I never actually, I, I see him pissed off and I've seen him salty, but right. I never saw him like this. And he was like screaming at the producer and he said, you are ignorant. Chinese martial arts is practiced by all sorts of people all over the world. This is Hong Kong, not some back alley in China. Hong Kong was a British colony. We've had Western students since the 60s in Hong Kong, right? And the producer's like, no, the audience will only believe that Chinese people learn. Like, like he, didn't, he didn't also understand the difference between Hong Kong, and I'm not even going to say China, Hong Kong and China from the 1950s. Like, he equated it all as the same thing. This is one of the most ignorant people I had ever, ever had encountered. So um, I basically, and, and I remember Jimmy was sitting outside of the uh, Larrington gym. And by the way, the Larrington gym was, uh, used to be Grandmaster Yip Man's school in the late 60s. And Larrington took it over. So it was also Yip Man's school at one point. And he was sitting at the stairs out there. And I walked out and he was sitting there. And I remember he was like this on the, uh, on the stairs with his hands this way. Because the producer and Larrington were going at it really loud. And I went out and I'm like, yeah, I guess I'm too white to be in the episode. Lucky for you, right? Because he's a white guy, right? <laughs> and, and then he's like, yeah. And then he, but he was very professional. And I only exchanged, you know, a couple words with him here and there. I, we did the demo the first day and he came up to me. He thought that was really cool. When I, uh, uh, in the demo, which they didn't use, they only used two movements from my demo. If you see like these short things in my demo, I wanted to show some like MMA stuff. So I had my student tackle me and I did like underhooks and, but I did pride style, kicked him in the head on the ground. And I remember when I kicked him on the ground. Jimmy said, whoa, we can't do that in MMA. And like, and it was really cool cool and they ended up cutting all that stuff and because the producer and Leung Ting didn't get along that's why you see in the opening demo they hardly show any of our demo we, we, we did like long pole versus knives we did the forms we did tisa we did fighting it was one of the best Wing Chun demos ever and they as they say in the industry killed us in editing and yeah. so um and yeah and then Jimmy trained and then again they wanted everything like rice patty, you know, it was like, 
oh, you're going to learn footwork, but you're going to do it on a sandpan in the water, right? And then like, you know, oh, and then you get kicked and you fall in the water. And it was so kind of goofy, like, like the guy had seen Bloodsport and that's the only Chinese <laughs> film he had ever seen, right? And so it, and, and grandma's, and, and, and one thing that was very funny because my Seagong gets a little bit of shit from the Wing Chun community because, you know, like they say, oh, he, you know, he's a, calls himself grandmaster. A lot of people in his association care about these titles. When they introduced themselves at the beginning, the other Sifu, his name was Kong Ji Kung. And Kong Ji Kung's demo, by the way, was a hot mess. He came out there, they didn't even know what to demo. He actually had to ask Sifu Leung Ting what to do. And Sifu Leung Ting said, why don't you have your guys do that? And Sifu Leung Ting was directing his demo because Dang. they came totally unprepared and the stuff they were doing was ridiculous. And so anyway, when the producer wanted uh, the two Sifus to introduce themselves to Jimmy and Doug, and the producer was such a moron because he's like, Leung Ting is a grandmaster and Kong Ji Kung is a Sifu. The reason they chose Kong Ji Kung was because he didn't go by the title of grandmaster. So they thought that meant he was something else. Instead of like all Chinese teachers are Sifus. They're like, you're grandmaster, he's a Sifu. And, and honestly, and no disrespect to Kong Ji Kung, but in the world of Wing Chun Sifus in Hong Kong, all right, of all the famous Sifus, of all the Sifus who train fighters, he would be like number 17 on my list. Like Leung Ting is one of the most famous in the world. Maybe you choose Wan Kam Leung or one of Wong Sun Leung's students or another student of Yip Man. But uh, with Kong Ji Kang, like I, I really was very kind of strange, right? Well, so Kong Ji is also a JKD practitioner as well, right? Didn't he learn under Ted Wong? Uh, yeah, I, 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 I've, I've heard about that. And, and, and I think he also teaches that and he also kind of mixes things up a little bit. I mean, to be fair, he was kind of quite different, but like, it, it's kind of like, you know, the who's who in LA and it's like, if they chose, you know, uh, Benny the jet for one thing, and then they chose like some guy that you don't really know much of. And it doesn't mean he's not good. Because right. Kong Ji Kung is no doubt very skillful, but it was just, it was just a very strange mix. Right. So anyway, um, like they wanted Leung Ting to introduce himself as Grandmaster Leung Ting. And that is not something a Chinese person does. Grandmaster is something you're called from the general Chinese community or you might, or martial arts community, or you might be a Grandmaster within your association, but you don't say, hi, I'm Grandmaster Leung Ting. And he was like, and he refused. And that was day one. He's like, no, he goes, I do, do not call myself Grandmaster. That is a title in my association, but uh, Chinese man does not introduce himself that way, right? I remember he was so angry, right? And um, and the producer insisted, he's like, no, 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 because he's a Sifu and you're a grandmaster, that's what you got to call yourself that. And so like, and that was already like, that was day one. And that was, and, and like the whole thing at the gym the next day where I showed up, they kicked, that was day two. Okay. So this was just like, just a nonstop shit show. And then the problem started to arise, okay? Now, um, uh, there was one problem of, at the Leung Ting gym at that time that most of the students who were practicing at the headquarters, they were just hobbyists. In other wow. words, at that time, Sifu Leung Ting didn't have a team that was uh, training professionally for fighting contests, right? In the 70s, he had a lot of fighters. But at that time, in 2008, all of the students who were practicing at the IWTA headquarters, they were hobbyists. Like, you know, like a lot of my students, they right. come just for fun. They, they're an accountant and they do martial arts three times a week, right? And now suddenly it's like, oh, in three days, we're going to have to fight Jimmy, who is a professional MMA fighter. And like, they got to get someone who's like the right weight and they got to get someone who's not just going to get run over, right? And so the problem was, there was no one in Hong Kong who fit that bill. And I was like, I'll do it. 
And Tito Lang Jing was like, okay, no problem. My student Michael do it. And we said, we put the face cages on. They're not going to know we're not Chinese, right? Because they had to wear the face cages, right? We mentioned it to the producer on day two, day three. He's like, no, they're not Chinese. Well, they're going to have the face cage. No, 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 no. So I was like, I also felt so pissed because I was was like ripped at that time. I was like, I had cardio for days. I was like, right? And now I'm too old to fight. I was still, I could still fight. I'm too old now. I'm 42, right? So I was kind of pissed. And so the question was, now we need to get someone to fight because now since they're going to make him fight one of our guys, it's a matter of saving face, right? right? Because we don't want one of our guys to just get the shit kicked out of them, right? So we had to find an Asian student with fighting chops. And um, I had at that time a student, he was Korean, was a police officer. And one of my toughest students, he had like former, he was a former boxer, super tough, granite chin, just like, you know, looks like Masoyama, you know, just like one of those (laughs) killers, right? And he was like 22 years old, fit, ready to go. He just got out of the police academy. He was like ready, you know? And so I was like scrambling in the middle of the night and Grandma Soling Ting was going to pay for his ticket to fly all the way over to Hong Kong so that he could fight on that final day, right? And um, it ended up like because of he just joined the police right. and he wasn't allowed to do something like that because it was like in his contract about like fighting for, I don't, I don't remember, it was like something and then suddenly he couldn't do it. And then I'm, we're scrambling and there's no one Jimmy's size because Jimmy's not the biggest guy in the world, but the students in the Hong Kong gym at that time were kind of small. So yeah. it was like, uh, and I, I would have been a little underweight to fight Jimmy, but uh, height wise. Okay. But weight wise, I was, I, he was definitely stronger than me. Um, but I, I would have been like, okay, fine. I'll still, I'll still do it. I don't care. Um, I mean, have face cage on. It's like what, two minute rounds, I'm, whatever. It'll be over soon. Who cares? So, um, the problem is that as it got closer and closer, it was starting to freak out. So Sifu Leung Ting decided to just say, fuck it and go nuclear option and bring one of the Italian fighters over. And I'm like, they already told us we couldn't fight as white dudes. So I, I don't really understand what Sifu Leung Ting's idea was. I think he was just going to try to strong arm them at the last minute. Like, this is the guy we got to fight. This is what you got. You know what I mean? So I have a feeling he was just going to do that and put the helmet on him. And the guy that they brought, brought was a guy named Paul Cordy. Super strong guy, big guy, good fighter, you know, was a bouncer and like, you know, had done security. You know, I remember, I think Jimmy said something like he was a bodybuilder. He wasn't a bodybuilder. He was just, but he was well built, right? So he was a, he was a stout Italian Wing Chun fighter and he was ready to go. And he basically came the day of the final day to fight. And uh, he was there ready to go. And the producer was like, no, 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 no. So we had to put some of our small boys in helmets and go out there. and they made it seem like Doug won all two or three of his fights and like, uh, um, uh, or, or no, no, or, or sorry that he had lost to the Wing Chun guy. And then they made it seem like Doug beat one of our guys or, or whatever. But I was there, I was actually the rooftop they had it on was, uh, on 442 Nathan road. And I was like on 440 or the other way around that building was higher. So we were on the rooftop looking down. Yeah. So we could see the fights. And I actually have a video of the fights. Oh, dang. And, yeah. And so um, the outcome was fixed. And, and also the every, and, 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 you know, we all know reality shows are a bunch of bogus, right? Most of what Jimmy and Doug said, like the banter they had, it, it's scripted, right? Yeah. And I don't think that comes as a shock to anyone, right? But people think a reality show, there's got to be some kind of real bit. No, they're literally going like, 
okay, so when you see him kick him on the ground, I want you to have a reaction like, oh, you don't do that in MMA or something. They like told him to say that. They filmed it and he said it. So the whole thing is concocted. And then at the end, the, the, it, the outcome was like Jimmy had lost, but then they, they, they said, oh, no, or Doug had lost, but then, no, he won against one of our guys. The thing was completely rigged. I mean, the fights were total nonsense. Right. Um, you know, two Wing Chun guys going at it with chain punches and very little technique is just kind of, kind of messy. And you could see that the level of the fighters uh, from our side and also from the other side, these are not professionals or semi-professionals or even people who, who should go in the ring, you know? So, so that was, a, that was a, a problem and that ended up making the whole thing a shit show. When it was done, so I'll, I'll, tell, you, uh, I'll tell you the truth, I've never watched the whole thing. I watched the opening, like the, the, the demo with like, right. the, so I could see the couple bits with me in there. And I think I scrubbed through a couple pieces. I couldn't watch it because that, what they did was not what that grand awesome plan was that we had made in my school. And so I feel that, um, and, and Jimmy and Doug were awesome, awesome dudes. I, I think they're great. I think the show was a great idea. I think that episode was very poorly executed and I don't think it was a good showing for anyone involved. And I, you know, if you want to lay blame, I blame the producers on that. So yeah, that's and all I, I got to say about that. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> so in retrospect, a lot of these reality shows from that time, uh, Human Weapon was the exact same. It's, it was all scripted. And a good friend of mine, uh, the Brooklyn monk, Antonio Grichepo, he was the advisor for Human Weapon's Bokatar episode in Cambodia. And he's one of the foremost experts on uh, uh, Cambodian martial arts. And he was there for years, speaks fluent Khmer. And he was telling me how they didn't even have a school that they learned at per se. It was like at the master's house. And so the producers like, well, this doesn't work. And they actually went in the jungle, built a like makeshift school and then created this whole false idea of this was the, you know, the, the school and the training center. And he said, he knows that on other episodes, they did a lot of that same stuff. So it's scripted. It's all constructed beforehand. Uh, it's just, you know, that's reality TV though. It's, it's not reality. Yeah, and I remember, like, even that first day, they were like, what are we going to film the first day? Oh, we want to film sparring. How long do you want to film sparring? Yeah, we'll, we'll just have you guys spar. We're just going to shoot for about four hours. You <laughs> want us to spar for four hours? Like, Hundred man kumite. Yeah, I mean, first of all, have you seen how violent Wing Chun is? It's like, you know, we're going to move around and then step in and punch and elbow the hell out of each other. And we're not doing that for four hours, son. And so, but so it just showed you kind of how ignorant they were. And then, you know, oh, they had to film that shot out on the sampan on the little boat. And yep. it's just like, you know, you might as well have had them in, in, in rice paddy hats and with the frog button shirts and stuff like that. I mean, it was, it was ridiculous. It, it was, what a mess. Well, yeah. Kind of thing, right? Once again, they're just trying to draw in audiences. And the funny part is they're actually uh, excluding the true Kung Fu fans that watch that and, you know, know that it's not real. And they know it's like, wait, where are the white guys? It's Hong Kong. You know, it's, uh, it, it, you know, it's, it is what it is. Well, everybody, I mean, you, you know, even Frank Bruno, the former heavyweight uh, uh, boxer who fought Tyson, he even did a Wing Chun class at the Hong Kong headquarters uh, with Sifu Leung Cheng students in like the early 90s. I mean, like w Chinese martial arts has been an international thing pretty much since Bruce Lee made a name for himself. And yeah. so this idea that like you're going to go to Hong Kong and they're only going to be Chinese people practicing, as a matter of fact, the people 
who are really into Kung Fu these days are the Westerners uh, or the Westerners say non-Chinese or non-locals because they're the ones that appreciate the culture. They go out of their way to learn it. The locals, I mean, the average Hong Kong Chinese, uh, you know, young man in their 20s does not give a flying crap about Chinese Kung Fu anymore. They, they, they you know, want to have the, uh, the, the newest shoes and, you know, it's right. all about the look and the Gucci and everything like that. And they, they, they could care less about for them. For them, they equate Chinese martial arts the way Americans equate, you know, um, uh, rodeo skills and l- using a lasso. It's like, it's something, it's, yeah, it's part of your culture, but who the hell cares about that, right? So, yeah, and it, yeah, it's funny. The the Hong Kong equivalent, you know, they did the show Kung Fu Quest. They actually nailed that right on the head with the Hungar episode where uh, <laughs> they have your favorite individual, Philip Ng, uh, go to Europe to learn Hungar at like three different schools in Europe because they're touching on the fact that a lot of, the most dominant areas which have Chinese martial arts now are not in Hong Kong. Uh, and in fact, for our listeners that may not know, you actually did the three-year intensive program in Germany. Yeah, I, I did because, of, you know, especially Lang Tang's Wing Chun is uh, most widely spread in, in Europe. And at that time, they had a full-time headquarters for people who wanted to train Wing Chun six hours a day, five days a week. It was in a castle. So I trained at a castle for three years doing nothing but Wing Chun like a maniac and then when I came then I started to learn directly from Sifu Leung Ting and I learned let's say the Hong Kong style which was a bit different from the European style but yeah uh, that was it and and um, although I'm a definite Hong Kong style Wing Chun guy uh, I don't think I would have as versatile an understanding of Wing Chun had I gone to Hong Kong for right. those three years instead of going to Europe. I think training in Europe allowed me to, to have a better perspective for when I did have the chance to learn the Hong Kong style. Um, and so, yeah, it's unfortunate. I mean, my good friend, Mak Chi Kong, one of the best Hongar masters in the world, you know, he, he's open with his knowledge. He's so skillful. He's so humble. And, and I, I know very few people that I've, I've, I've in the martial arts world that know as much about martial arts as he does. And like, He'll be teaching a little, like three people will come to the class. I'm like, if this guy had a Hongar school in New York, he'd be set. <laughs> like oh, people yeah, he's are, because he's I, the I, man, I, right? Uh, but yeah, they, they just, they, you know, you're not a prophet in your, in your own country, right? So. Yeah. I've had the pleasure of training with Max Sifu twice now. And uh, he's just an extremely skilled, very, very nice individual. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and it's it's hard to have this conversation with people that have never gone to either Hong Kong or China and try to explain to them that, uh, especially in mainland China, it's like, no, there are not Kung Fu schools on every corner. In fact, they are very rare. And the ones that you might find are probably not very authentic. Right. And more often than not, the martial arts you will see in China, it's like MMA and uh, you know BJJ are bigger now because of the growing MMA scene. But Taekwondo, because it's an Olympic sport. Yep. Wushu because it's still a big enough sport and there's a lot of money in it. So you will see wushu schools, but like what, you know, they would call like wushu, like traditional Chinese martial arts are not that common. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Even in Hong Kong, I remember my first time I went to Hong Kong in 1996, I was uh, what, like eight, 18 years old. And I thought, you know, I was going to like, you know, I mean, I was 18. I was technically an adult, but I thought I was going to see a Kung Fu school on every corner. I thought I was going to see people walking down the street. I'm like, that guy's got to be a Kung Fu master. (laughs) And it was like, no, the Hong Kong was way more modern than I had expected it to be. And, you know, you had to really dig 
deep and hard to find Kung Fu schools. And then you'd walk up there and it's only open, you know, three times a week or something. And, and so, yeah, it's not the, the, uh, the fantasy and expectation versus the reality is, uh, is quite, quite a cavernous gap. Right. And it's sort of like, kind of like how you were saying the producers didn't really understand Hong Kong culture or history. A lot of that is people not understanding, you know, mainland Chinese history. And obviously, you know, post-World War II, communist revolution. Uh, part of that revolution was, you know, they wanted to end a lot of the traditional aspects of Chinese culture, including martial arts. So within the mainland, almost all those masters fled to either Hong Kong or, uh, you know, Taiwan or other areas around the world where there was Chinese diaspora. And that's why there's also a lot of these hot spots for traditional Kung Fu outside of, you know, the Chinese region. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You hit the nail on the head. That's why people are like, oh, I want to go to China to study Kung Fu. And it's like, well, if you want to study traditional Chinese Kung Fu, you're way better off going to Hong Kong or Taiwan because most of the masters left after the Second World War and went to those places that were not under Chinese rule. And it was not allowed to practice Chinese martial arts openly until uh, a guy named Bruce Lee came around and they realized that uh, they could make money with this. And suddenly, oh, look, we found the Shaolin Temple. Never mind, it's made out of plastic and was built in the 70s. Uh, but no, that's the real Shaolin Temple. Yeah, the one of all the movies you guys have been watching. Yeah, we just found it. Yeah. It's over here, by the way. Shaolin, Shaolin. Yeah, so speaking of Kung Fu movies, speaking of Wing Chun, there's uh, not so much a resurgence of Kung Fu movies, but a resurgence of Wing Chun films, obviously, that started in 2008 with the release of <clears throat> Yip Man, or as we like to call it, IP Man. IP Man. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, what a lot of people may not know uh, is that Wing Chun has definitely been portrayed on screen many, many times. Uh whether it was entertaining or not, or how well done it was, is up for debate. I mean, there's been some less memorable movies, but uh, I think we can all agree uh, that The Prodigal Son would be the best Wing Chun movie ever made. Yeah, I think so. Uh, hands down, uh, it's it's the best. And also the story, the yeah. acting, it's just such a great movie. Yeah. I think that there's, nothing is going to top Prodigal Son. Right. That, 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 that teacup scene, you know, where a... Where a where yeah, Lam Ching Ying finally accepts the tea from Yim Biao gets me every single time. And also yeah. uh, the final fight, the emotional content in that final fight between Yim Biao and uh, Frankie Chan is just fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really beautiful. And, and there definitely was a social commentary in there about, you know, the mindset of the old Sifus not wanting to teach their art and that the art was dying and then how he kind of puts that into his face and then finally gets accepted. Yeah, the, the film, it's amazing because it's, it's like, it's, it's got... Uh, comic elements and it's got very serious elements and then right when it gets like so crazy in the middle with the burning of the opera house you have this big like comic relief scene with like Samo and the calligraphy and it kind of brings you down and then at the end it hits you again and it's just it's so like the, the, the story it's so well crafted it's really really incredible and it's you know a lot of people will ask me oh what's a good kung fu movie to watch well the fact that it's on Amazon Prime right now I just <laughs> I direct people to that I'm like Watch The Prodigal Son. You won't be disappointed. Uh, it is the English dub version, but it's the original English dub version, at least, not one of those newer fortune star ones from around 2000. But the movie I want to talk about today is one that's almost like never really mentioned. And from, from my research, it's really like the first straight Wing Chun film. Uh, it's called Stranger from Shaolin, released in 1977. And it's the origin story of supposedly this now, uh, it's the longstanding, I guess you could say, myth 
of where Wing Chun came from, which you guys have talked about on Dudes of Kung Fu, has been debunked. And that's the story of Yim Wing Chun, uh, the girl that was taught the art and so forth and so forth. So I figure we can maybe talk a little bit about this movie simply because Leung Ting, uh, Leung Ting was the technical advisor on the film. And I was wondering if you had any insight on it. Yeah, I, I mean, in, in my time learning from him, you know, most of... Uh, most of his Western students don't know a lot about his Chinese movie career, but of course I was the exception. So I would, you know, I'd be driving to the car with him and I'd be like, you know, so, hey, Seagong, what was up with that movie Stranger from Shaolin that you made? Like, you know, what was that all about, right? And what's interesting, and, and I've noticed this um, when I've had conversations even with Lo Mong, you know, from Five Deadly Venoms, or Lu Fang, also from Venom's fame. When you meet these, like, people who were in the movie scene back then, as fans, we are like, you know, oh, this movie was from 1977 and starred this guy, this guy, this guy, what about, and then, and they're like, um, which movie was that again? Yeah. And because one, you realize they made so many of them, especially the Shaw actors, they were basically showing up to work. It was like a nine to five. What role are you playing today? Okay, throw this wig on. You're going to do it. So they were just kind of make, doing a job and they had no idea that this, these, some of the things that they were doing would become iconic. And Sifu Leung Ting was like, uh, he, he told me that, you know, in the mid seventies, he was very famous in Hong Kong because as a Wing Chun instructor, he was promoting, he, you know, he was on TV and he had a TV show for RTV in the seventies called Real Kung Fu. And it was based on an eponymous magazine that he was publishing called Real Kung Fu, where he would have real Kung Fu masters and showcase their styles. And then he always had some kind of Wing Chun propaganda in there for his own school. And then eventually um, RTV which was the original Hong Kong TV station before TVB. Our, our TV uh, was founded and it was a paid TV station. You had to like pay to have it installed and you had to pay a monthly fee. Oh. And then when TVB came and TVB was owned by Shaw Studios, they offered TV for free. You didn't have to pay it, it was free over broadcast. And that caused a huge problem for RTV. And in 1973, RTV had to also be free, otherwise no one was gonna pay for it, right? So in the mid seventies, uh, it's basically RTV versus TVB kind of competing against each other. And by the way, if you've been to Hong Kong now, you know, ATV, which is Asia television, that's what the uh, RTV is now ATV, right? Wow. And so it, it's like, it, it, it's a very far cry from what it used to be, but it used to be the first Hong Kong channel. And so in the mid 70s, Sifu Leung Ting had this magazine, and then they gave him a TV show with the same name, Real Kung Fu. And he would uh, showcase a different Kung Fu style every episode. And he would have that master show their best techniques and their weapons and everything. And then he would have some Wing Chun demo at the end to get people to join his Wing Chun school. And uh, as a result, his name kind of got really big. And based on that, he was able to get that first film, which was Stranger from Shaolin, uh, 1977. And um, which was oddly enough, I think, produced in Korea. Oh, 100%. Um, and that's one of the things I wanted to bring up real quick is yes. during a period of time, a lot of Kung Fu films uh, that weren't Shaw Brothers, because Shaw, Shaw Brothers had their own giant studio where they could shoot everything. These other movies, in order to get really authentic, like Chinese looking sets, remember they couldn't go to mainland China yet. Mainland China wasn't opened back up. So they would go to Korea. And so this was very commonplace among some of the smaller film studios like Lo Wei. That's why a lot of Jackie's early pictures were co-productions in Korea and they'd be shot there. And a lot of even like well-respected scholars will make the mistake. Like I've heard audio commentaries where like, well, you can see here they are in China. And it's like, no, that's Korea. And right. so a lot of times with those co-productions, you would get Korean actors, Korean co-directors, you know, because it's being shot in a whole other country. 
Yes, yes. Um, and I think even Bruce Lee was going to shoot Game of Death, the pagoda thing in Korea. I think that was right. the original idea. And probably just out of convenience, you don't have a pagoda like that in Hong Kong and you can't go to China, right? Um, so yeah, so it, it was shot there. And also Warriors 2, which was a Wing Chun movie, which came out the following year, was also shot in Korea. And Love so, that. yeah, uh, and so th that kind of seemed to be the trend there. Um, Stranger from Shaolin had a bunch of no names in it. I mean, it definitely was like a B team production. Um, oh. What's what's cool is that you do see some authentic Wing Chun choreography. Obviously, um, you know, Sifu Leung Cheng had the, the female Cecilia Wong or whatever her name was doing some, you know, kind of Leung Cheng style Wing Chun. And it was pretty good. I, I mean, I haven't seen it. The last time I saw it was on VHS huh. uh, many, well, many years ago. I was surprised because uh, both Gavin and myself rewatched it. It's on Prime right now. And surprisingly enough, it was the finale that lost me. It just kind of was a little lackluster. But a lot of the smaller fight sequences throughout, I was like, damn, this is, this is actually kind of good. You know, uh, and I was like, the Wing Chun kind of looks authentic. Yeah. And some fast-paced uh, choreography. And I was also really surprised by some of the supporting actors and their martial arts ability. And... It was quite commonplace that uh, in these co-productions, the Korean ones, you'd see a lot of good kickers, obviously Taekwondo guys and stuff. But one of the ones that surprised me is uh, uh, Chong Yi Tao, who's better known as Bruce uh, Lei. So he was one of the Bruce Lee impersonators, most famous. Five Star Adidas. Yeah, exactly. One of the, uh, in Clones of Bruce Lee, that film. And he's actually a really good kicker. And you, you realize, wow, some of these Bruce Lee clones were good martial artists, but they spent all their time trying to replicate Bruce Lee and just kind of look like idiots. Yeah, absolutely. I think he told me something that because, you know, Leung Ting was, that was his first movie and he was kind of the new guy on the block. I think that the last fight scene, he had the, like the main choreographer had to do it and he wasn't allowed to touch it because he was like the low guy on the totem pole, just the consultant, but he had his hand more in the earlier fight scenes. And that makes perfect sense because the actual choreographer was uh, uh, Yen Shi Quan from uh, Fearless Hyena, uh, a classic, uh, you know, martial arts villain. He was in uh, years later in Once Upon a Time in China. Uh, but uh, even still, that would have been kind of that more traditional style choreography segueing out of that Peking opera to the more explosive, you know, uh, Leung Kar uh, you know, the like Sha uh, the Shaw Brothers style that was coming to fruition at that point in time. But uh, it makes total sense now because the finale is not bad. It's just it lost my interest. Yeah, sure. And Wing Chun is notoriously a very difficult style to choreograph because it, it you know, in terms of like ticking the boxes of what's good for film choreography, <laughs> Wing Chun doesn't really tick many of those boxes. One, the movements are very small. They're very short. And also because it's a practical fighting style, practical fighting styles tend to be very repetitive because it's about doing something quickly to stop your opponent from hurting you as opposed to doing things for the sake of it looking good on screen. So the problem is that a highly repetitive short movement style is not very um, easy to make it look good. And then you have to have practitioners who are skillful in it, whereas you can you can fake some of the other styles, not because they're easier, but because the movements are a lot broader. So if someone can do a strong block like this, well, you can just change their hand to the T sao and now suddenly they're a Hong Kong guy, right? So right. you can easily change like the drill bit of the hand and oh, now it's, you know, now it's tiger, now it's leopard, where, you know, you can do that off of a kind of a standard base, but Wing Chun is like hyper specific in the way that it moves and it just, just makes it a mess. I think Stranger from Shaolin was one of the first like movies to really just go straight only for Wing Chun. Shaw Brothers had a couple movies that kind of like 
tried to do a little bit. I think Shaolin Martial Arts in 75 with uh, Fu Shang. The Chinese title is actually Hong Yu Yu Wing Chun, which is like Hongar and Wing Chun. And they have a couple like scenes in there, but it's Wing Chun light. And so Stranger from Shaolin came and I don't know if it was a big hit. I doubt it was. Um, But shortly after that, the following year, uh, Warriors 2 came out and also Descendant of Wing Chun. Uh, yes, with, uh, Melvin Wong. The original, the original casted guy was uh, William Chung. They had casted That's William awesome. Chung in the starring role, but um, he did such a poor job with the choreography, <laughs> and also he wanted to change the story because uh, William Chung has um, his own alternative version of Wing Chun history and how he learned and where it came from, and he wanted to basically rewrite the script to um, to showcase his his version of the history and first of all the producers like uh no you're gonna do the script we gave you we we're, we're not interested in you adding your whatever wing chun politics into the script and then also the thing was you know william chung's a very good fighter but like we talked about uh when we did our uh, episode last week with you sometimes really good fighters are not really good at choreography right and, and apparently he was just re- really poor at um sticking to the choreography and being able to do it well so he got fired after one week and then we replaced him with uh, Melvin Wong, who, you know, in the kind of like, the you know, two degrees of separation from, you know, the Kung Fu genius, you know, Melvin Wong is a, he's now a lawyer uh, right. in Hong Kong. And like, you know, my wife was also a lawyer. They had like no mutual people. Like, it's really funny how, you know, the, uh, the, um, la, the late Lao Ka Leung, his wife uh, was also a lawyer and she went to law school with my wife. So like, it's, it's very funny. Like it's, it's extremely small world as far as, that and Gavin and I, Gavin and I also have two degrees of separation from Melvin Wong. Would you like to share that, Gavin? Oh yeah, of course. For a second, I'm like, wait, what's what's the separation? Yeah, I I, I worked on martial law for a little while with Sam Hung for a year. Wow. So, yeah. I was I was more referring to Melvin Wong being the bad guy in Writing Wrongs. Oh, that's right. Yes. <laughs> Peter Sugarfoot Cunningham being his henchman in that movie. But now that you bring that up, Gavin, that is a connection you and Alex have is you have both met Sammo Hung. That's how right. was that? How was that for you? <laughs> Amazing. Not try- yeah. <laughs> Sammo Hung was, was, uh, you know, they always say don't meet your heroes cause you know, you might get disappointed, but Sammo Hung was absolutely the exception. Yeah. 10 minutes before I met Sammo Hung. I had no idea I was going to meet him. I was having breakfast in Hong Kong. I was 18 years old, my first time in Hong Kong, in the, in the hotel in Sha Tin in the New Territories. And I'm having breakfast at the hotel. I was there with my parents. And Sammo Hung walks in. And I like, I was like, I was freaking out. And I'm like telling my mom, like, it's Sammo Hung. I'm like, he fought Bruce Lee and he did with the, the dragons forever. But I'm like going like, and, and my mom's like, well, go get your book. Cause I had the Bay Logan book that had a chapter on him. And like, I asked at that time, I didn't speak any Cantonese. But I asked the waiter, like, could you ask him if maybe I can get a photograph or something? And the waiter asked him and he says, yeah, he'll be done in five minutes and then he'll come out. And Sam Hong came out and he spent like, you know, he, he gave me his time and was not rushed. He was like, he couldn't speak much English because it was like about two years before martial law where his mm-hmm. wife, Mina, had coached him a lot on English to, to, to do, do better in that role. But at that time, he didn't have the role yet. He had no reason to. But he, he really tried and he signed my book and he took a bunch of photos with me and he was like super calm and super cool. And it, if, if you asked me 10 minutes before I met Sammo Hung, 
who would you like to meet out of like Jackie and all the people around? I would say Sam O'Hung. And like literally he just walked into my life and it was one of the best days of my life for sure. That's that's so funny because uh, just now uh, Jessica uh, heard you telling this story and she's cracking up on the couch. I think probably because she imagines me reacting the exact same way if I was in that scenario. She's literally like trying not to laugh out loud right now. But uh, that that's just so incredible. It just It's like you say, just walked into your life. Yes. But uh, Gavin has you beat slightly because he's actually been to Samo's house. Wow. And so Gavin, you want to share that story real quick? I, I can share it real, real quick. Uh, so basically uh, I was working as a production assistant. It was my first week on martial law and they had someone who was already delivering the scripts out to the actors. And uh, everyone at the office knew that I liked Samo Hung. So uh, they had one more revision and like, so we have something for you to deliver. Would you take this to this address? I'm like, sure. Who's it? Who is it? And like Sam will hug. So I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm going. And uh, long story short, I pull up to his, his uh, parking uh, gate. I decided to park on the street. I go over, ring the bell. And all of a sudden I hear this. Yes. And I'm like, that's Samo. Uh, and uh, I'm like, hello. Uh, I have a script for uh, Mr. Hung one minute. And then this gate opens up. So as you walk in, there's this walking path, there's a driving path, and there's a walking path to the side. I know I'm on Zoom and, and viewers can't really, listeners can't see it, but I cut off to the right and the path is, it's kind of serpentines a little bit. So it goes towards the house, then moves away from the house, then back towards the house, almost like a, a, like a river. So as I'm walking along this path, I see this bay window, it's looking into a kitchen and there's Samo at, at like the sink cooking or washing dishes or something and he sees me and he's wearing his like uh, traditional Chinese it's, I think he, it was white with like a black collar and uh, he comes out and so he joins me on this pathway so we're like kind of serpentining towards each other and then I'm just standing right in front of him and I'm holding the script in my right hand and he's looking at me clearly waiting for me to give him the script but I can't speak and so he puts his <laughs> hand out and I'm like oh, I have hand him the script he goes thank you and i'm like thank you and then he just looks at me for a second i guess he realizes clearly i'm i'm a fan and maybe the only person on the show who knew of him before the show so he reaches out his hand he shakes my hand I'm like thank you very much thank you very much and you know that i i go on my way and uh i i, I had a few other interactions with him throughout the year and I, I i swear all i did every time i saw him was just have this huge big stupid smile on my face and i could hardly speak to him and i had a Mr. Nice Guy poster from a Japanese video store. So one day I just show up with the with the poster, and he like looks at it, shakes his head, puts it up against the wall, and uh, you know signs it for me. Uh, but awesome. uh, yeah, he's he, he's phenomenal. And 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 uh, to to close this off, just to speak to like what a great like gentleman he was uh, at the wrap party. Uh, all the executives are together, and it's at a restaurant, going around, you know, walking past Samo's. Uh, table samuel shaking over his hand thank you very much thank you very much then myself and uh, the other uh, production assistant robert when we come up he stands up and he greets both of us like shaking both our hands at like the people our friends who are with they're like these are good men good men hard-working men so he for all the production assistants he he just gave us like you know made us feel like royalty he was just wow. a phenomenal gentleman and uh, they they actually specifically requested Gavin's help on one of the episodes that was based around the Yakuza because of Gavin uh, growing up in Japan. And they wanted him to kind of authenticate the script. Uh, but also, didn't you mention that, was it Samuel specifically that kind of 
is interested in you penning some future scripts? So I, Alex, you might, you might know the gentleman, I think it was Joey O'Brien was his assistant. Uh, and I think Joey ended up writing a script for an Andy Lau movie, but Joey came to a few people, uh, on the on the production team when they were trying to uh, put together a season three and he said that sam would be interested in reading uh, a script or two that i might have uh sort of go ahead and put a script together for season three which i did and then season three didn't happen but yeah yeah yeah, yeah. unfortunately oh. was so great i mean to see I remember when it came out, I, at that time, I wouldn't watch anything on network TV, but to have the chance to see Hong Kong action on network TV, that was like the biggest, I never missed an episode of that. Uh, it was incredible. I, that was like one of the best things in the late 90s on TV. It was, it was, phenom- it was phenomenal. I, 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 went, I forget which day it was on, uh, but every day that, every, once a week, I would go over to my friend Marvin's, Marvin's house apartment and we would just put it on. And, and watch and then talk about the show for an hour after the, the show was off. Saturday nights on CBS. Before right. Walker. Before Walker, Walker, yeah. So we basically talked over Walker while after. <laughs> <laughs> so, how, did, how did Walker, Texas Rangers stay on the air so long and martial law was only for two seasons? There is yeah. no justice in this world. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of... Uh, I mean, Gavin's given a lot of great information. We recorded an episode about, about the show. And then even if you listen to Carlton Cuse's audio commentary on the DVD release, you, it's pretty much they could have had another season. It's, it's just it, the, there was too many things that weren't working out right. You know, it, it's just it was very possible that a third season could have happened, but it also makes total sense that it did not, unfortunately for all of us. But uh, so real quick, what I would like to finish off with, with these uh, uh, last few minutes or whatever, probably take maybe 10, but uh, just random questions that we have put together for you, Alex. Okay. So my first question for you is, uh, how would you feel about if like the 8711 stunt team tried to tackle a Wing Chun centric film? You know, that style of action, but, you know, based around like using Wing Chun as the primary art. Yeah, I think that'd be amazing. I mean, I'm I'm looking for something new. Uh, I'm so in- incredibly bored with Wing Chun choreography, the way that yeah. it's done by most people nowadays. Uh, Yip Man 4 movie, my good friend Steve Chris Collins in, it's great, I'm happy for him or whatever, but it's like, it's a lot of recycled stuff. I would love to see something new, absolutely. Agreed, agreed. And I mean, uh, obviously, even with the, the current Yip Man series, after number two and when Sammo left, and now I love Yuen Mo Ping, one of the greatest of all time, but he just can't handle the Wing Chun choreography like Samuel can. Nobody can. Yeah. And it has become very stale. Uh, Gavin, you next. Oh, oh, I think he muted him. He's still mute. <laughs> I do that all the time. No, we can't hear you. <laughs> nope, not yet. Nope. Zoom is crazy that way. Okay. You're very low. Let me try the headphones again. Okay. No, no. <laughs> okay, you get that figured out. I'll ask my next question. Uh, so, real quick, what was, uh, do you have any insight on Frankie Chan's martial arts background? No, that's the, that, that is like the big secret million dollar question. And my uh-huh. very good friend, Sifu Vincent Lin, right. who, um, who was in Outlaw Brothers with Frankie. I think Frankie Chan directed that movie on top yeah. of being in it. Um, 
He told, uh, what's crazy is Frankie Chan was so good. Look at Prodigal Son. Look how skillful he was. But unfortunately, the Hong Kong scene was so saturated that like even someone as skillful as Frankie Chan didn't have a huge career in Hong Kong, which is like, which is such a tragedy, right? Um, he, you know, he did Prodigal Son. He did um, Outlaw Brothers and a few other films here and there. I don't know anything about Frankie Chan. Uh, I, I, and, and even I know people who were in movies with him and they, don't, they can't tell me anything, right? So yeah, that's a huge black hole of knowledge for me. We're going to have to find Frankie Chan and try to, uh, because even other interviews I've listened to with like Bruce Fontaine, who was also in Outlaw Brothers, you know, he talks about the working conditions with Frankie Chan, but no one ever talks about his martial arts background. But he has to have had something because obviously he was an actor, a musician, he scored dozens of films, yes. but martial arts performances, Prodigal Son for one, Outlaw Brothers, and even in uh, Carry On Pickpocket, he had mad skills. Uh, so either he was just a natural or, you know, he had to have some sort of background. So I figured if anyone know, it's you, but Well, no. I think it's time for a Chinese Google. Uh, I, I haven't Chinese Googled him. So, uh, ah. you know, when you look up someone's Chinese name in Google, then you see a whole world of stuff that you don't get when you type Frankie Chan, right? So that might be next on the plate. Very nice. That's actually how I would, uh, when I lived in China for all those years, when I would personally try to find uh, Sanda schools to learn Sanda, whether it was in when I was spending my time in Hong Kong or in China, I was like, wait a minute, if I Google search and then I'd find the schools and then I would have someone translate for me. But uh, anyways, Gavin, can we hear you now? Super quiet. Still quite low. What happened? He was, he was going strong with the Samo story. No problem. And now, and now it's low, man. Zoom and all this technology, right? You would think they'd get it down. Yeah. Keep asking the questions, AJ, and I'll try to figure this out. Okay, you're getting a little bit louder now. Okay, so I still have some more. Uh, Southern Shaolin Temple, real or not? Fake as four stripe Adidas. <laughs> there we go. That was uh, pretty much what I just wanted you to confirm for people, just because I've been watching a lot of uh, classic Shaw Brothers movies recently on this quarantine, and it's I'm just sort of like, yeah, because supposedly it was in Fujian, uh, but really, and I think you guys have talked about it before, it was, it's pretty much a falsehood. Yeah, pretty much. You, you can, I mean, anyone who wants to go real geek on that, if you want to see the original so-called Shaolin origin story with the five elders, you can uh, download a, a book by Gustav Schlegel. Uh, it's called The Hung League, H-U-N-G, uh, League. And it was written in the 1800s. The book is free. It's in public domain now because the book is so old. So you can get like a PDF of it um, for free. So you don't have to worry. You're not stealing anyone's book. And basically he was a, a Chinese um, a sinologist. So he had studied, he was like a professor in, in, in Chinese history and Chinese language from Holland. And he had come to China in the 1800s after they arrested a bunch of triads and confiscated their books. And he did the translation for it back in the oh, 1800s. And it has all their rituals and their histories and all that stuff. And all of that was basically uh, because the, the Hung society, they were anti-Qing rebels. Right. And so basically they were creating propaganda to get the people to want to fight against the Qing. And part of this propaganda was they burned our Shaolin temple. And like, you know, then the, the five founders, um, you know, were able to escape. And they also happened to be the five founders of the five leagues of the, the Hung Lodge and so they have, you know, five lodges and each of them are responsible for different things. And that's the original story. Kung Fu novelists got a hold of this. And it wasn't that these five 
uh, founders were the founders of the five lodges of the Hong Society. It's they changed the names and now these were the five founders of the five uh, streams of martial arts. So uh-huh. what you have to realize is that the original Hung story, which was, uh, which was a propaganda completely made up like false flag story by the Hung Society, was then taken by novelists and then changed the names and made that the, the founding story of Chinese martial arts. So you have to realize what most people peddle as Chinese martial arts history is a, is a plagiarized version of a fictitious story so you you cannot even go more wrong with any of that stuff and they all have similar origins so we're moi and and uh um some older styles of hong kun have feng sayuk who also learned from moi and then the pole comes from the Sim, and then feng Dou Dak, you know it's all fake it's all completely fake all right gavin can we hear you now i believe you can very yeah, quiet it's but still kind of low but I, I can hear you better than before i'll put it up a little bit Okay, uh, let me uh, just fix the audio just a little more. Let me know, is this better now? Did much better. Yep. Much better, okay. All Your right. question, go. Okay. And by the way, thank you. That was an uh, amazing insight on Kung Fu history. That could be a whole episode of Dudes of Kung Fu, by the way. No, that's pretty much everything I know because that's oh. all there is. <laughs> okay, Kevin, next question. Okay, you were talking about uh, choreography. So I just want to, and, and Wing Chun specifically, so I wanted to kind of bring up Ip Man and how sort of Graham, it, he was portrayed both by Donnie, Donnie Yen and of course Tony Leung in Grandmaster and how those kind of tackled Wing Chun uh, in their own way. Yeah, um, uh, it's difficult because I think anyone who practices an art and then they make a film, a fictitious movie about that art, it's always going to be a really hard sell for the people who are in it. Like, no Bruce Lee or Jeet Kendo fans are ever going to think that Dragon the Bruce Lee story is anything more than a bunch of nonsense, right? So you have to realize that, you know, Dragon the Bruce Lee story and maybe that weird TV series in China, that was like the one for the Bruce Lee, right? But we keep getting new fictitious nonsense about our late grandmaster. And uh, I'm a total history nerd and I'm a huge, I have grandmaster Yip Man nerd and Hong Kong history of the 1960s and 70s is my wheelhouse. I mean, this is a fascinating time period that I just love. And um, Donnie Yen uh, is a fantastic martial artist and he's the best martial artist out of all of them to play Yip Man. And so those are the strengths of his films. He's not a very Mm -hmm. good actor. And I feel that he doesn't, and also, if you understand Cantonese, <laughs> uh, you'll notice two things. One, almost every other line is pretty like, at least in Yip Man 3, that uh, Donnie Yen says is, uh, what's going on? It's like literally like every other line, like, dude, who wrote this shit? <laughs> it's, like, it's like, what's going on? What's going on? So it's like Yip Man 3 is about a guy who doesn't know what's going on because he has to keep asking it, right? So, um, and the other thing too is he doesn't make any attempt to act like Yip Man. He's, right. he's Donnie Yen in a Cheung Sum, the long clothing, right? He doesn't even bother to shave his head for all the millions of dollars that he gets. He doesn't bother to try to speak with a Fatsan style accent. And, um, and he's just kind of like oh, very easily pushed to fight. And, and so, and this couldn't be more different from the late Grandmaster's life. Grandmaster Yip Man's actual life when he came to Hong Kong in 1949 was extremely dramatic. And, it's, and his real story is much more interesting than this drivel that they keep pushing in these films. And so um, I actually find now people really like the Grandmaster because it's a Wong Kar Wai film. Mm-hmm. I can appreciate the Grandmaster if I say I'm watching a Wong Kar Wai film. 
right. but the moment I'm reminded that this is about Yip Man or Wing Chun, it bothers me because I feel that Wong Kar Wai, and I met him at the premiere of Grandmaster here in New York, and he talked about why he made the movie. And it's like, I don't know. Sometimes I feel that Kung Fu movies by certain directors, it's like somebody writing a book of, somebody telling you about sex who's only read a book about it. <laughs> and, 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 and so I feel like it, it, it's like, okay, you get, you get the main points, right? But there's something missing when you have not experienced it yourself. And yep. uh, I find personally that the best portrayal of Yip Man was uh, Anthony Wong, Wong Chao Sang in uh, Yip Man, The Final Fight. Because he actually speaks with a Fatsan style accent. He bothered to shave his damn head, unlike any of the other actors who played him. And he even went to pains, like he would ask uh, Yip Man's son, Yip Jun, about mannerism. So like the way that he um, holds his cigarette and he puts the ashes in his hands and then plays it, that Yip Man actually did that. So Anthony Wong actually went through great pains to be like Yip Man. And, and he was a lot more humble and his attitude was a lot more like the real Yip Man. And, you know, while the action, I mean, I also think action wise, it's pretty good. I think Yip Man, the final fight is the superior. It, it's, it's not as stylistic as Wong Kar Wai's films. It's not as hard hitting as the first Yip Man movie. Um, it's not as ridiculous as the, the, the prequel, The Legend is Born. But it, it, it's, it's Goldilocks. It's, it's kind of just right, given what our options are. So. But I, I Unlike The Legend is Born, it doesn't have ninjas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yes, yes. I, I, I love that you brought up Anthony Wong. I, I, I'm a particular fan of, a uh, great fan of his acting. He's just he's so layered and yeah, can just yeah, so absolutely. versatile. Yeah, I, lo I love Anthony Wong. And even though he's not known as a martial artist, he trained in Dai Seng Pekwar, uh, monkey style and axe fist. Um, but I thought he did a great job with the Wing Chun choreography and he was just, he was the right actor for it. I think he did a great job. Do, do you mind if I ask a second quick follow-up question? Please. It's just, it's follow-up because it's related to Wing Chun choreography. Would yeah. you say that some of the best Wing Chun choreography on film actually is related to actors working with the wooden dummy? And I'm not trying to be facetious. I'm kind of thinking about like some... Yeah, no, actually as a... Um, so people don't know that there's a secret video of Grandmaster Yip Man performing the wooden dummy, not the one that everyone has seen on YouTube. There's mm -hmm. a video of Yip Man on the wooden dummy and that was 10 days before he passed away. He mm -hmm. shot that for his sons because they wanted to have some record of what he taught. But pe what people don't know is five years earlier, he shot a video for one of his students who was a famously corrupt police detective named Tang Sang. And, um, and this was a secret video that wasn't meant for anyone to see. And it just so happens over the years, my Sivu in Germany is now the possessor of this video. And, and this has not been seen by Yip Man's sons. It has not been seen by any of the Yip Man's students. Only uh, a small core of students of my Sivu have seen this video. And so I've seen, you know, the performance of Yip Man's form before he passed away. And then I've seen this earlier one where he was still in very good form. And that form is the, the same way that uh, Sivu Leung taught me the wooden dummy. So to put it mildly, I'm a wooden dummy snob, okay? <laughs> like, uh, you know, in terms of like how it's done in this, Wing Chun is such a small style, wh whether you do a Jutsu this way or this way or this way, those are like huge conversation points for us, right? Whereas, yes. on the, you know, the actor just does it anyway and they're like, oh, looks Wing Chun-y and I go, yeah, but his hand was like this. Yeah, like his elbows in the wrong position, his shoulders up, right? So um, I actually find that wooden dummy choreography in most Wing Chun films are usually the worst part of them. Because really? they are, yeah, because actors are kind of just shown really quickly, do it like this, do it like this. And it's Donnie Yen's wooden dummy performance is 
very mediocre in my opinion. Um, uh, Yun Bu's is like a very kind of like a caricature of Wooden Dummy, what he does there in Prodigal Son. And so um, I... I was I was sort of leaning towards uh, what Jackie Chan did in uh, Rumble in the Bronx. Then I saw that AJ's holding up gorgeous. So. Yeah, yes. So I actually find oddly enough that uh, Jackie Chan's performance in uh, Rumble in the Bronx, where he kind of freestyles it. Although mm-hmm. if you look at it, there's actually some movements he does there that are actually not Wing Chun at all, but it's yeah. mostly Wing Chun. And um, and it's not the form he freestyles it. But I have to say. He wasn't really supposed to be a Wing Chun guy there. It was just that happened to be a wooden dummy and then he showed it. He did a better performance than many of the people who are supposed to be Wing Chun people. And so I, I still find that as like, and I remember in Gorgeous, he had the wooden dummy with like the different arms and stuff. I, there was a time period, I, I thought Gorgeous was one of the best films. I just thought it was so great. I love the way it was written. And I saw it so many times, but I have not seen it in a really long time. So uh, I, like I'd seen it many times, but I've not seen it so long. I would have to watch it again uh, to kind of see it with new eyes um, to, 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 but the rumble in the Bronx one, because every Wing Chun Instagram account posts that every three days. So <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that'll make feed regularly. In gorgeous, Jackie Chan's in love and it hurts. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. His, his typical, uh, his, his, his um, typical habit of casting very beautiful women to star opposite him. Uh, like I even know. in dragons forever, his love interest was, you know, Miss Hong Kong at that time. So yeah. Well, I, I love how Anita Mui was the love interest in miracles. And then a few years later at rumble in the Bronx, she's the auntie. Yes, yes. And then yeah. and then his stepmom in Drunken Master. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Demoted. <laughs> yeah. The funny part is, oh yeah, no, I'm going to get into that. Uh, anyway, so I have one last question before we go into our final uh, little segment we have planned. Real quick, uh, not a whole lot of explanation needed. Most underrated Kung Fu star of all time. Your underrated Kung Fu star of all time. Um, well, always difficult to consider what is underrated. Like, I like it and other people don't like it or people just don't know about it. Well, I think the person we mentioned earlier, Frankie Chan, probably okay. one of the most underrated guys ever considering his skill and the lack of exposure that he had. Um, I, I would I put Frankie Chan up there. Now, again, like under uh, underappreciated for me, I, I'm in a group talking with two two guys who are obviously insane about martial art movies. I would say the world doesn't know enough about Lam Ching Ying. Uh, yes. I, I think that Lam Ching Ying, uh, when you look at his performances over his career, uh, I mean, first of all, Prodigal Son, all right, an epic performance, right? But even like, you know, from being a lowly stunt guy in, in Fist of Fury and, and uh, Enter the Dragon, and then you start to see his career like he's just a random bad guy in Magnificent Butcher, and then he slowly gets these more prominent roles Encounters of a Spooky Kind, Prodigal Son, yes. Uh, and then Mr. Vampire, right? right? But then you even see in Painted Faces, where he didn't mm. have a main role, he was like where he, he, he plays an, an aging opera star and he kind of goes crazy. Like, and then you see him just as a straight dramatic actor. And it was like, oh, I remember the day Lam Cheng Ying passed away because I was working in Seattle for my triad boss at that time. I told you about him. Yeah. And then he was reading a Hong Kong newspaper and he goes, oh, Lam Cheng Ying passed away. And I remember like when I heard that, I, I had to keep working for another like four hours or something like that. But I was so, that completely messed me up because I had not gone to Hong Kong yet. And I remember when I went to Hong Kong, I was like, I'm going to figure out some way to meet Lam Cheng Ying. And, and and then he like he passed away before I had a chance to go there and 
man. And so did Quanta King. I also wanted to meet Quanta King when I went. And yeah, so I mean, Lam Ching Ying and Frankie Chan, Lam Ching Ying for me, uh, I can watch Lam Ching Ying all day. He's incredible. And, you know, I, I think he's very underrated. Excellent, excellent choices indeed. And it's a shame that we never got to see that English American remake of Mr. Vampire that they started shooting at Golden Harvest and then scrapped after like two weeks. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. And didn't I didn't like Lam Ching Ying star in a movie or was going to star in a movie with Peter Cushing? Is that the like, well, uh, all I know is Tanya Roberts. Uh, from Charlie's Angels and later that 70s show and then the Bond Girl from A View to a Kill. She was the co-star with Lam Ching Ying in this production. And then it, was, it wasn't until like two or three weeks in, they're like, wait a minute, we're trying to make an English version with Lam Ching Ying, who doesn't speak English, of a very Chinese-centric concept of like the juncture, the the zombie like vampire genre for the American market. What the hell are we doing? <laughs> How did this get funded? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then they just kind of scrapped it. But I've heard multiple different stories of how that went down, but uh, definitely underappreciated. And Pain and Faces is on Netflix right now. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And such a, such a great, such a great film. I love that movie. Yes. And so, and real quick, just speaking of old school stars, I just saw because it just happened a few hours ago, but uh, the Hong Kong Film Awards for this year, Tai Bo won Best Actor. Tai Bo? The character actor from all of like Jackie's movies and stuff. He's always the weaselly guy. For, in Winners and Sinners, he was the uh, the the bo- like the boyfriend of James Tian's daughter, the mob boss. In uh, Project A, he's one of the guys. In Young Master, he's one of the students that is like really weak. You would instantly recognize him. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure. But for some reason, I'm completely drawing a blank on that. And then you said Tai Bo, and the only <laughs> thing in my mind is Billy Blanks. <laughs> and then my mind goes like, Billy Blanks, Tai Bo, and then I think Michael Jai White, and then I think Jackie Chan, and then like my brain is not making a single connection right now on anything. <laughs> he, he was the one that in Dragons Forever, he's the waiter that like lets in the gangsters. Oh, oh. Yes, 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 yes. And then he jumps off at the end, right? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, of course. He's one best actor, and I'm like, that's awesome. One of the old yeah, good, good for him. Yeah, yeah that's great. That's but, great. Okay, so real quick, what we've decided to finish with, since we have uh, this interesting situation where we have three individuals who uh, speak second languages uh, of some level of fluency. Uh, we have Gavin, who grew up in Japan and speaks very high-level Japanese. Uh, Alex speaks very, very good Cantonese. He's a student of Cantonese. Uh, and I lived in China for over five years, and I speak decent Mandarin. So we've all decided to bring either a short little sentence or even a word of something martial arts related. So, uh, Gavin, how about you go first? Okay, this is uh, I, I'm pulling this directly from Sanjiro, the movie with uh, Mifune and Nakadai. Uh, the the line is, "Doshitemo yaru no ka." Okay. Wait, wait, say that again. Say that again. Doshitemo. Yarunoka. <laughs> you have to say it with that guttural throat <laughs> thing, otherwise it's not Japanese. Yeah. What does it mean? It basically means, so you really want to do this. <laughs> awesome, Ooh. awesome, awesome. Cool, cool. Okay, uh, Alex, you next. Okay, so I got a short one, but you hear it in, uh, you hear mostly in more modern action movies. Have you ever heard Pokai? 
Oh yeah, pokaya. Pokaya, say pokaya, right? So pokaya literally means to fall on your face on the street. But it, it basically is a way to, it's like a way to say damn. It's a way to curse someone. It's a way to call someone bastard. And you can say like say pokaya, which is like die and fall on your face kind of like. And, and so it's a very versatile slang. And so if you hear it, uh, thrown your way, then, you know, uh, as we say in the States, then be fighting words. <laughs> yeah, then, then be fighting words, except Gavin would be in the back saying, Mutawa, Mutawa! Very good. Yeah, Yamogaucho is also very important, right? Yeah, it's very good. Your pron- and your pronunciation is, is, is quite authentic. It's very good. <laughs> Uh, anybody who's watched a Donnie Yen movie in Cantonese, you're definitely going to hear Pokaya a lot. Fatsang Messi, Fatsang Messi. What's going on? What's going on? Donnie's best line. What's going on? What's going on? So uh, mine I brought to the table is one that I learned uh, when I was studying at the Shanghai Sports University, when I was studying with the Sanda team and when we do sparring. It's funny because my classmates, uh, I love my classmates. They were very accepting of me. I was the only foreigner in the class, the only white guy, and I spoke very minimal Mandarin at that time. So it was really hard for me. They would, they'd only laugh at me when I had no idea what was going on in the sense of like what our teacher Joe Lausher was saying. But uh, the expression that first got said to me a lot when we were sparring, because the thing is they would actually root for me against their own classmates, mostly as they were hoping I would win. That way they could bust that person's balls later. And you know, <laughs> like, so what they'd always say to me, so my Chinese name was Alu. And they're like, Dasata, Dasata, which literally just means like, it literally translated would be like beat him to death. Yes. The way of saying kick his ass. So it's just da, si, ta. So like da to hit, si, to die. So you're literally saying beat him to death. Yeah, yeah. In Cantonese, that would be da se koya. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It's funny. People ask me sometimes, uh, you know, how close are Cantonese and Mandarin? I say, well, you know, there's going to be no, no. words, loan words, cognates, stuff like that. That sounds similar. But it's not like, not always. But that, uh, that is interesting that that one is pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this has been awesome. It's been a ton of fun. Uh, I want to thank you so much again, Alex, for coming on. Uh, I've got to record two shows with you now in the last week. Uh, this has just been so much fun. Yeah, this was really great. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to meet you, Gavin. This was totally was awesome. Super we, great to meet you. Yeah, we got to do this again sometime. And if I'm if I'm out in LA, man, I would love to hang out with you guys uh, after this, uh, yep. this quarantine thing. <laughs> Come train with us at Sugarfoot Kickboxing. You'll get a kick. Definitely. You know, you know, I'm actually I was actually born out in Southern California, so I'm, I'm originally from there. Oh, where about? Yeah, I, I grew up. I grew up on the East Coast, but yeah, I'm originally. I was born in Torrance, California. Oh, oh wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I grew, up, grew up in Jersey. <laughs> so you were you were born right near uh, Alpine Village. Uh, I suppose. Yeah, sounds familiar. Yeah. Yeah. My, my, my parents lived in 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 Rancho Palos Verdes, and I was born in Torrance. So yeah. And Torrance and is where a lot of the the Japanese population is. Ah uh, yes, yes. So see, that that was my early ninja influence. <laughs> there you go. There you go. All right. Well, I guess we'll wrap it up here. Thank you once again, and uh, yeah, maybe we can record another episode in the future. Sounds good. I look forward to it. Take care, guys. Thank Peace you. Guys.